Matthew chapter 27, this morning we are moving, of course, toward the narrative of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, looking this morning at verses 27 through 32 of Matthew 27. We're going to read that passage, and I'd like to ask Abe Ragib if you would pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, and they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off and put his garments on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Let us pray. Amen. Many of you remember, uh, it's been about 20 years now, but the what would Jesus do craze? Uh, you might still have articles of clothing in your closets with the WWJD. What would Jesus do? Uh, that was uh, a major thrust in, in Western evangelicalism here in the United States especially. And it was modified, of course, to what would Jesus drive? Where would Jesus dine? And why would Jesus be a Democrat? And actually, I made the last one up. But, uh, you know, it, it, was a, it was a big thing, asking the question, how would Jesus answer this or, or deal with this particular situation? What would Jesus do? The, the problem with that whole movement was that it came from a novel that was written in the 19th century, early 20th century, by uh, Charles Sheldon, who was a Congregationalist minister of um, questionable orthodoxy. Uh, he did not actually believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. He held to what is known as the moral example theory, that Jesus provided us as a very, very good man, an example to live by. And so as we read the life of Jesus, and uh, the books called Lives of Jesus were rampant in the late part of the 19th century, we read those Lives of Jesus, or we read about Jesus in the Gospels, and what we're learning is how we should respond when we find ourselves in similar circumstances, what would Jesus do in this circumstance? But I think we understand that Jesus is far more than just a moral example. And uh, fortunately, that, that craze, I think, has, has died out. I haven't seen many WWJD um, baseball caps lately. Modern charismatic movement is kind of on the other side of the spectrum. 
It echoes another strain that um, has been in existence throughout the last 2,000 years as the church and members of the church try to, try to deal with who Jesus is. And the charismatic movement focuses on what is called the cosmic Christ, the Christ of miracles. Divine power and supernaturalism then become the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry both in his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago and uh, according to the charismatic movement within the believer today, that if that we're truly following Jesus, then our life will be manifesting miracles and there will be power. Not so much imitating Jesus as an example, but really kind of channeling Jesus as a God. These, of course, represent opposite extremes in our understanding and I think our thinking, if we would contemplate it and question, well, what do I think about Jesus, probably vacillates in between these two. We see Jesus performing miracles. We see him overcoming nature. We see him arresting death and reversing it. We see the divine power in the man, Jesus. And we can't help but wish that we had a similar, or maybe some of that power in our own life. We see him respond to those who oppose him. We see the wisdom of his response to the Pharisees and the scribes, and we would like to imitate that. But I would say that the true Christ, the true Jesus, is neither an example to imitate nor a power to channel. There's something vastly different that we see in the passion narratives that we've been studying, a different perspective on the man Jesus Christ and and honestly not one that can be exampled it can't be followed but it also it, it can't be channeled either it's what has been called a sacramental life now you've noticed as you've read through the Gospels that there are a lot of quotes from the Old Testament and a lot of references that our Lord himself makes where he says this must be so so that the scriptures might be fulfilled and perhaps you've wondered whether or not Jesus, in reading his Old Testament, found particular passages and, and then, in a way, orchestrated his life to fulfill those passages. Or maybe, as the Gospel writers are thinking back on the things that Jesus did, and they're, of course, reading their Old Testament, they would see the passages and they would say, this is exactly what Jesus said, this is exactly what Je Jesus did. But I would submit to you that doing that, thinking about the Bible and, and then how Jesus fulfilled it, misses the relationship between Jesus and the Word of God. And that's what I want to point out as we're moving into the, what some might call the meat of the passion narratives, of course, the crucifixion, which is certainly the culmination of Jesus' suffering. As we move into that, we're going to see that it very clearly patterns passages, long passages and prophecies that we read in the Old Testament. But Jesus and prophecy do not correlate in a mechanical or a contrived manner. We must remember what John tells us about Jesus, that he is the Word made flesh. He is the Logos of God, the Word of God in the flesh. And so when we read the prophecies of the Old Testament, and not just the specific prophecies, like the one we're going to look at this morning from Psalm 22, but the prophetic lives 
the life of Noah, of Moses, of David, of Solomon, of Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, of Daniel and of Job. These were prophetic lives. These were men who lived their normal lives, but their normal lives were infused by the Word of God, and their lives themselves became prophetic because the Word of God was within them. So it should make sense to us that when the Word became flesh, that that Word would then culminate and in some respects reflect each of those individual prophetic lives that we read about in the Old Testament. Jesus was not imitating them. They were, in a sense, prophetically imitating him because he is the eternal word. He is the word that was in Abraham. He was the word that flowed from David's pen. He was the word of wisdom that Solomon wrote down in his Proverbs. He was the word of prophecy of Elijah and Elisha. He was the lamentations of Jeremiah. He was the prophecies of Daniel. He is the word of God. So when we read of his life, again, we're not reading of something that we imitate. Oh, I wish I could respond to persecution this way. Look at how Jesus is so calm. He doesn't answer back his persecutors. How like a lamb led to slaughter he is. I can't even stand it when someone runs a red light. You know, why can't I be more like Jesus? Or look at the power. If we read another passion narrative that I've referred to frequently, when the soldiers come to, to get him, to arrest him, and the, he asks, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus. He says, I am. And they all fall down. His power, even in the midst of his suffering, his power was manifested as being divine. Oh, if that power could channel through me, how victorious would I be? Not only against sin, but, but toward life. So it's understandable that we look at Jesus and we want to imitate or we want to channel. But I've said throughout this series, there are, there are times when we're not asked to imitate. We're asked to adore. We're not asked to apply we're asked to worship. He's not like us in that sense. Not only was he a perfect man born without sin, but he was also the eternal word of God in the flesh. The point of all of this is that I think we will better understand the passion narratives, which are so frequently reflected in the Psalms of suffering. We will better understand them and the Christ who suffered so horribly, when we understand that he is the culmination, he is the manifestation, and literally he is the incarnation of the words we read in Psalm 37, in Psalm 22, in, in all of those different suffering psalms, he did not find prophetic passages and then orchestrate his life to fit them. And that's actually a theory that was propounded by Albert Schweitzer. That Jesus tried to pattern his life according to the prophetic scriptures he read. He did not do that. Nor did Matthew go through the scriptures and find passages and then force fit them to apply to his history of the Christ. He was the word who became flesh. And therefore, he was the living law. He was the living Psalms. 
He was the living prophecies. He's the Word of God, the living Word of God. This is a sacramental life. It's not one that any of us can have because our life does not stand for the life of another. Our life does not stand for the life of a people, of a nation. And our life is not the incarnation of the Word of God. And so we read and we adore and we worship Jesus our Lord. The course of Jesus' life, his suffering, his death, were already written. We know that. We know from reading the New Testament that his life and the course of his life was the answer and the fulfillment of prophecies. But what I want to point out was this was already written by himself. He, he was the word who inspired David to write the Psalms. But not only were these words written by him, he was the word thus written. So when we turn to Psalm 22, and I would like to ask you to do that, maybe if you, you have uh, something you can put in Matthew 27, let's go back to Psalm 22. We see the script for the scene of the Passion written 1,000 years or more before the events took place, written by the one who would thus suffer 1,000 years later in Gethsemane and Golgotha. But especially in Psalm 22, we actually find him within the Word itself. The Word within the Word the Word of God. This is the script, the script. There's a tradition that dates from the early part of the church that Jesus, while he was on the cross, recited from the Psalms, beginning in Psalm 22, verse 1. And when he got to Psalm 35, that is when he gave up the Spirit. It's a nice tradition. It has no validation either in Scripture or in any historical records. But nonetheless, when we read, especially through these particular Psalms, our, our mind goes to the cross. Let me read to you selections from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer. And by night, but I have no rest, yet thou art holy. O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Verse 9, yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. And beginning in verse 11, a longish passage, but it it echoes what we just read in Matthew 27. They open wide their mouths at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Excuse me, I started in verse 13. I wanted to read 11 and 12 as well. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. 
Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and thou dost lay me in the dust of the death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There is no event in the life of David that corresponds even remotely to these words. Other prophecies and psalms of David, we can say, oh, this is when he was fleeing from Saul, or this is when he was feigning insanity at the doorstep of the Philistine king, or this is when he had gone into Bathsheba and committed that horrible sin. We can see events in the life of David, whom Peter tells us in his first sermon was a prophet. But we can read these and say, oh, okay, that was David, and he was a type, and he was a shadow of which Jesus was the fulfillment. But when we read this psalm, there's nothing in David's life that corresponds to this. This is known as the psalm of the cross. It begins with the brutal beating that Jesus suffered at the hands of the soldiers. And of course it ends, well, no, actually it doesn't end in the tomb. It ends beyond the tomb. Because it goes from a psalm of suffering to a psalm of salvation. What I want to point out to you, though, is that, again, this is not just something that Jesus somehow orchestrated, laying down his life as a martyr to his own cause, but it's something he lived. He lived it when it was being written by David, and he lived it when he was on earth 2,000 years ago. His word is living and active. And if we look forward from the cross, if we look forward from the empty tomb, if we look forward from the ascension to the time of the church and up to the time of the end, Jesus is still the living word living through his people. He's not separated. He's not separated from his word. Turning back to Matthew 27 and the passage that I read as we began It's a well-known story, many different aspects that we could draw from it. But several weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' words when they came to arrest him. When he said to them, as recorded by Luke, he said, This is your hour and the power of darkness. And we talked about the fact that behind all of these horrible scenes that we read was Satan, whose time had come whose opportunity had been given to him, and the hands of God and of the angels had been taken off. And there was nobody in the ring but Jesus and Satan. Jesus himself said, recorded by John, that Satan is coming, the ruler of this earth is coming, and he has nothing in me. This was was the cosmic conflict. This was the ultimate heart of the narrative, was the conflict between Satan and Jesus. But why do we have so much trouble remembering that, as Paul says, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the authorities and the principalities of this present darkness? Why is it that we so easily get to focusing on those flesh and blood opponents, 
the enemies that we perceive among mankind, this is a place where we would like to imitate Jesus. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And those passing by were hurling insults at him in the same way the chief priests, we read further on in chapter 27, also with the scribes and elders were mocking him and even the robbers who had been crucified with him were casting the same insults at him. Isn't it amazing when we picture the events as we read them in the narratives that Jesus does not answer any one of them? That he is calm and poised. He truly understands, as he says later, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He understands that his enemy and the one that was truly hurling abuse at him was not the people, not the chief priests, not the Romans, but Satan. But wickedness has a very human face. And that's what we read, and that's what we focus on, and that's what we see in our own lives. When we profess our faith in the office or in our neighborhood, or in our families even. What is it that opposes us? Who is it that opposes us? We don't see demons coming out of the woodwork, I hope. We see a father or a mother or a sister or a brother mocking. We see a co-worker ridiculing, or a boss firing, or reassigning to a lesser position. And we don't see in our country nearly the persecution that our brethren suffer elsewhere in the world. And yet, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our opposition is not the people around us. They are blinded in their own sin. They are perishing. And the scriptures call us to pity, not to retaliate. And so Jesus, in a sense, does give us an example of recognition that we can overcome the humanity of sin by recognizing the spirituality of our true enemy, the devil. But more than that, we can overcome the humanity of sin by recognizing the one who in his human nature overcame it on our behalf. The one who did not break a bruised reed, the one who did not snuff out a smoldering wick, the one who did not retaliate, the one who could have called down legions of angels at his beck and call, yet absorbed the abuse of men and uttered those words, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. The human element of sin is real. I don't mean to mitigate it, but it is truly impotent. Jesus said, fear not the one who can kill the body but rather fear him who can cast both the body and the soul into hell. The human element of sin is real. It's around us and we experience it, but it is truly impotent. It has no true power. The chief priests, the scribes, and even the governor of the Roman province had no power but that which the Father in heaven had given them. Remember that statement that Jesus made to Pilate. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And even Pilate the pagan 
recognized the truth of that statement, and from that moment on sought to free Jesus and to get himself out from any entanglement with this mysterious man. Even the scope of evil is controlled by our Father in heaven. Even the scope of evil that was hurled against our Lord at Golgotha was controlled by our Father in heaven. Listen again from Psalm 22. Verses 19 through 21. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Thou dost answer me. If there is an example in Jesus' suffering, it is the sure knowledge that wicked man's impotence against the sovereign providence of God. It can do nothing against a believer, a child of God, but that which God allows. And the eyes of faith can see through the struggle and see through the humanity of sin to the good providence of a kind father. But I think we all admit that our eyes are not always very clear. And we tend to get bogged down in the human vessels of wickedness and not realize that he has overcome that in his flesh. And he has overcome the spiritual source behind that wickedness on our behalf. And so the Psalms that speak of the suffering also speak of the salvation. The the struggle that we read Jesus going through in the, in the early part of Psalm 22, we see the victory in the latter part of the same psalm. I still believe that Jesus' greatest struggle was not on Golgotha, but in Gethsemane. I believe that when he walked out of Gethsemane, he had wrestled with that cup of wrath that God his Father had placed in his hand. And he had determined that he would drain it to the dregs. And so from that point on, we do not see him sweating drops as of blood. We do not see him anguished and agonizing. We see him resolute under the abuse of all men. We see him quiet on the cross. Suffering physically, yes. But Jesus was settled that he would complete the mission all the way through Golgotha. But what was Jesus thinking when he was on the cross? We know somewhat of what he was thinking when he was in Gethsemane because we have it recorded for us. We know a little bit of what he was thinking on the cross, but there wasn't much said. What was he thinking? Well, again, because I believe that the script had been written in Psalm 22. These are the words that he was thinking. Psalm 22 Verse 22, I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he hidden his face from him. But he cried when he cried to him for help, he heard. This is all part of the script. This is all part of the living word 
who wrote through David a thousand years before the living word made flesh, suffered these words on the cross. And so in his mind, in his heart, he was reciting, as it were, his praise of a faithful father. Even though he was forsaken by God because of the wrath, yet he knew that he would proclaim his father's glory to his brethren. Paul writes of this, you might think of Jesus on the cross as impotent, but listen to what Paul says in his letter to the Colossians. He says, when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. That is the perspective that faith has. The Jews saw a, a, a self-proclaimed Messiah dying as a Roman criminal on a cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The disciples didn't know what they were seeing. Their rabbi, whom they believed to be the Son of God, was being put to death by the Romans at the behest of their religious leaders. But Jesus was making a public display and this, to me, is the most beautiful aspect of the narratives of Christ's suffering, and that is the devil didn't know what was coming. He didn't know what was coming. C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, talks about the White Witch. And C.S. Lewis has Aslan telling Lucy, and uh, what was her name? Susan, Lucy and Susan, the white witch knows of the deep magic, but there is a deeper one from before the dawn of time. And we might say, Lucifer the devil knew of some magic. He, he got Jesus, and that Messiah is, is being killed. But Jesus knew what was coming from all of this. He had already said, no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down and to take it up again. And so when he was on the cross, when everybody was hurling insults at him, when the humanity of sin was at its most wicked, something tells me that Jesus our Lord was at his most calm because he wrote the Psalms that tell us so. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and will be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53. We were on his mind at Golgotha. Everyone who his blood bought, every believer in Jesus Christ was on his mind. We were the brethren yet to be born to whom he would proclaim the glories of his Father, the faithfulness of our God. The glory of God, his Father, was on his mind, and the salvation of his children was on his mind. It's all in the script. Psalm 22. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship, and those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even who, he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him, it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will yet to be born that he has performed it.
Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we worship the living word. And we see his life in the prophecies of the Psalms, in the Psalms of the prophets. The living word made flesh. The living word broken and beaten, crucified on Golgotha, and yet throughout living his own word. That faithful word that will not return to you void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent, has done so. And Father, we thank you that our Lord endured that shame and the humanity of sin and conquered the spirituality of it through the devil on our behalf. We do pray that we might have a measure of that faith, a measure of that grace, that poise, that inner power that comes to us only through the Holy Spirit by virtue of the blood of Christ. We do pray, Father, that we might in some measure imitate our Lord and ask and pray for forgiveness for those who persecute us. We ask, Father, that we would not respond in anger, but rather understand the words of the Apostle that we battle not against flesh and blood. We do ask, Father, that you might equip us again with that armor of God of which Paul, of which Paul writes. But, Father, most of all, we ask that we might adore and worship the one who suffered on our behalf, the one who rose on our behalf, and the one who reigns on our behalf. Father, we desire to reign with him for eternity. And we ask these things for his glory and in his name. Amen. Please rise for the benediction from Paul's epistle to the Romans, the 16th chapter. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen.